Hey friend, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary. Here we are another week into the new year and another episode of our Bible study series we call the Bible for Grown-Ups. Tonight, we're going to look at a story from Joshua chapter 5, where the manna from heaven that we often know about from the Exodus story stops. And what can that tell us about God breaking through in new ways, new opportunities, to see God working in our lives. I'll see you on the other side. Uh, speaking of subscription services, we'll actually get into that. Let me go ahead and get started. Uh, again, new year, new us, new season in our life, new, new opportunity maybe to see God working in our lives. So tonight, uh, the story is called No Manna, No More. And uh, for if you've ever been around the Bible, you might know the story of manna that came to the Israelites while they wandered um, in the wilderness. And we'll talk briefly just about that, just in case you don't. But in thinking of new starts, new opportunities for God to work in our lives, it's actually a point in Scripture, pardon me, just a few verses that records when the manna stopped. And I'd like to talk about that. The scripture we're going to look at tonight, just a small portion, comes to us from Hebrew scripture. And it is the book of Joshua. And it's the fifth chapter, verses 9 through 12. The story of Joshua begins with the people actually beginning to enter the promised land. Okay, so Exodus, come on in. Exodus ends that story of the Exodus and they find themselves on the banks of the Jordan River about to enter the promised land. So verse 9, uh, 9 through 12, chapter 5, sorry, 9 through 12. Let me just read this portion of scripture and then I'll, I'll begin uh, looking at this from a 30,000 foot view. The Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt. And so that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the Israelites were encamped in Gilgal, they kept the Passover in the evening on the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day that they ate produce from the land, and the Israelites no longer had manna, and they ate the crops of the land of Canaan beginning in that year. Thus ends our reading of Holy Scripture this evening. So it's kind of weird to ask about, unless you're like me, because I'll start thinking what I want for dinner at lunch. Um, but we are gathered around a meal here, so let me just challenge you by asking, where does your meal come, next meal come from? Is it vegetables that might have come from your garden that you've maybe stored over the, over the uh, fall and winter? Groceries that you might haul home from the store? Something on the restaurant menu that looks good to you? Now we have DoorDash and uh, Grubhub, pizza delivery. Until recently, those were really the only options that we had meal-wise until the advent of these meal kit delivery services. Okay, the subscription model began uh, was once the domain of those trying to lose weight. Originally, those meals, that subscription uh, service was for people that were trying to diet. 
But gourmet, gourmet meal kits have become a little hot corner within the food industry. They trade under the names like Blue Apron or HelloFresh. You may have heard of those. And they offer subscription uh, subscribers rather a box of fresh ingredients each week that they can use to whip up their own gourmet meals at home. You just open the box, follow the instructions, and dig in. And rapid delivery services like FedEx and UPS... Um, are the key to the success of those subscription services. So is an ingenious plastic sack of frozen goo that sits inside a shiny foil space blanket, transforming the cardboard box into a single-use disposable cooler. Now, obviously consigning all of that packaging to landfill space is not good for the environment, but it doesn't seem, based on the numbers, that consumers seem overly worried about their ecological transgressions. Once you have a subscription to one of these services, the food cartons will show up to you each and every week just like clockwork. You don't even have to order them, although most of these services do offer ways in which you can uh, tailor them specifically to your uh, tastes or needs. There are some, some substitution options, but the point is the boxes just come. They just show up. So with that in mind, let me tell you very quickly about the earliest meal delivery service. One day, long, long ago, the Hebrew people who were recently emancipated from slavery in Egypt, Moses had led them out of Egypt. And at one point after that, they were at the point of starvation in the wilderness. And they woke up one morning to find bread from heaven. And they called it manna. And just like the Blue Apron boxes or the Hello Fresh boxes, it came on a regular basis. Now, manna didn't come once a week. Manna came every single day. Well, except for the Sabbath. Okay, every morning. This went on for years with the Israelites. Now, Israelites' uh, rations didn't include quinoa or fresh basil or chili paste or hatch peppers. But without fail, each daily, uh, each day there was a delivery that included a fine flaky substance that according to Exodus 16 and 30, Scripture says, it was like coriander seed, white, and had the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. The Israelites would scoop this stuff up, and they'd bake it into little cakes, the ultimate convenience food for busy working refugees. Now, there wasn't any shipping box or freezer pack or insulating liner. This stuff arrived on the ground each morning fresh, like shimmering morning dew. And its shelf life was limited only to one day. So you couldn't hoard it and stockpile it for the future. It would go bad. Just enough for one day. But whom among them would have been concerned when it seemed like the Lord every single day delivered a flesh fresh supply of this stuff. Now, 
The day before the Sabbath, they would get a double portion that had a little bit longer shelf life so that they didn't have to collect that manna on Sabbath. But that was the only exception to this daily rule. And one of the most important lessons that this story teaches us is that it is truly remarkable how often the Lord sends us just what we need, just when we need it. It was true of the ancient Israelites. It's true of us today. When these holy wanderers were lost, God would guide them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When they were thirsty, the Lord taught Moses how to strike a rock with a staff and call forth a bubbling spring of water. And when they were hungry and they were thinking back to even though it was in slavery, they were still able to get three square meals a day. At least they were slaves, but at least the slave masters provided them. They're grumbling out in the wilderness. God offered them flocks of quail, easy to catch, as well as this unique gift of manna. Now, the word manna, in case you're curious, it's funny. The word manna in Hebrew translates into it. Literally means, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? Surely that was the question. They must have asked themselves when they first saw this crusty white substance on the ground. Scripture tells us that it went on like this for 40 years. That's an entire generation. Manna was the gift God gave the Hebrews on a daily basis to preserve their lives. Now, there have been Bible scholars, and I hope that you're not thinking this and thinking, oh, this is going to be great because he's going to have a good answer for me, because I don't. But because there's Bible scholars who are much, much smarter than I, ha I am, have tried over the years to try to figure out definitively what manna exactly was. And I'll just let you know, there are all kinds of theories um, some say that it was the secretion of certain insects. Others, tree sap. Still others uh, hypothesize that it was a type of edible fungus that would spring up at night. The bottom line is nobody really knows. And to the authors of the Bible, regardless, it's a miracle. And maybe that's all we need to know because there are people who approach studying the Bible, reading the Bible, absorbing the Bible. They approach the Bible looking for scientific explanations for everything between its cover. Anything that tries to bend the laws of nature, right? We know people like this that need it fully and unequivocally explained to them. And that's how you end up with thinking that something that in Scripture says tasted like uh, wafers of honey and come up with insect secretions or tree sap, wild fungus. Not very appetizing, to be sure. But if that's the best you can do, well, you're bound to find that there's no explanation. Regardless, if you're bound and determined to send these stories through the ringer of scientific method. There's no conclusive answer here. And if, if that's where you're hinging 
your experience, well then, I just want to tell you, friends, it's a, it's a very difficult journey from there. Probably not even the authors of the biblical accounts understood them to be 100% literal. Right? Even though interpreters thousands of years later attempt to do just that. that. No doubt, the ancient authors had a healthy understand of literary device like metaphor and symbolism. Even if they didn't have those exact terms to describe them. The elegant image of manna from heaven is a very powerful way to depict in a way which we can understand God's goodness and providing all that we need in this life. Let me illustrate this uh, with the words of a Presbyterian minister, William Sloan Coffin, had a wonderful way of addressing the subject of miracles in the Bible. When I read this, it just, this just makes sense to me. These certainly words I wish that I had uh, coming out of my mouth because he speaks directly to my understanding as well. And you may not, and that's fine. We have different interpretations. But hear the words of Sloan. Uh, miracles do not a Messiah make, but a Messiah can do miracles. If you asked me if Jesus literally raised Lazarus from the dead, literally walked on water and changed water into wine, my answer will be forced to say for certain, I don't know. But I do know this, that faith must be lived before it can be understood. And the more it's lived, the more the impossible can become possible. I can also report that in home after home, I've seen Jesus change drugs into furniture. Sinners into saints. Hate-filled relationships into loving ones. Cowardice into courage. The fatigue of despair into the buoyancy of hope. And an instance after instance after instance, life after life after life, I have seen Christ be God's power in salvation. And that's a miracle enough for me. Pretty good words, I think. There's also a substance in J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, functions very much like this biblical manna. Tolkien, of course, may or may not know, was a professor of ancient literature at Oxford, but he was also a deeply Christian man, and he was a committed Roman Catholic. When faced with the problem of explaining what food the hobbits, Frodo and Sam, would find to eat as they crossed the scorched volcanic hellscape of the land Moldor, Mordor, sorry. Tolkien invented a kind of manna that they could carry with them. It was a, a gift from the elves. It was called limbus. It was a magic bread. It's durable as hardtack and tastes far better. And cakes of this stuff could actually be kept for months as long as they kept it wrapped um, in a certain magical leaf. Even a bite or two of this substance 
was to sustain a weary pilgrim for a day. This is food for the righteous. Those who are evil, if you're familiar with the story, like the dark and twisted soul Gollum, find the taste of this substance offensive. In fact, Gollum refuses to eat it even when faced with starvation. This is actually consistent with Tolkien's personal Eucharistic theology. He's expressing his personal theology here. This probably stems from his Roman Catholic upbringing. A Latin term for the communion elements uh, that was common in the early 20th century. Um, it would have been very familiar to Tolkien. And it was the word viticum. Viticum. And that word means for the way. The communion wafer was understood to be spiritual provision for your journey. So it should be of no surprise that Tolkien in his novels refers to the Elvish bread-like substance as whey bread. For him, the communion elements are the Christian manna delivered to believers by the hand of a generous God. Now, all of this that I'm talking about, this provision, but what, that word, there's actually a word for it. It's called uh, providence. It's not a word that we hear much anymore, right? It's the capital of Rhode Island, but, and that city was founded by a guy by the name of Roger Williams, which you all remember probably from third grade civics or social studies or whatever. And he gave thanks for God's merciful providence. Now, he and his leaders were, uh, they, the followers rather, were led to that place, but then they too get driven out into the wilderness because of these unorthodox theological views that they had as Puritans. And when they were driven out in the wilderness, they didn't find manna, but they did find plenty of game in the forest and fish in the streams, and that was manna enough for them. It's been said that life is understood backward, but it must be lived forward. I believe that is also the way with us, especially when we find ourselves trapped in dire circumstance, when jobs are lost, when relationships fail, when sickness intrudes, even, even as something is locking the keys out of our car. We certainly often, we do not think at that time that God is close at hand, guiding our circumstance. But, wonder of wonders, we discover that we do in fact have what we need, when we need it, and we give thanks. Such experiences can be our manna moments. They may not seem like it at the time, but later on, with just the smallest of distance to reflect back on that situation, a pattern of loving care emerges. And we come to see the providential hand of God active in our lives in the most remarkable ways. When that happens, when we're able to see that in our lives, that place that we at one time imagined as a wilderness turns out to be a place of blessing for us. But here's the point. There comes a time, however, when the manna ceases. 
what happens in today's passage from Joshua chapter 5. On the very day that the Israelite people are bringing in their first harvest in the promised land, they awake to discover for the first time in 40 years, except for the Sabbath days, that no manna came on the ground. And that's not because the Lord had ceased to be generous. It's because the people of Israel no longer needed such heavenly provision. It's not that the Lord had stopped providing. God had simply started to provide in a different way. Friends, we are all partners with the Lord in this business that we call living. It's not like... Our spiritual relationship with God through Jesus, friend, is not to be lived as as if we're some sort of pampered house pet. A cat or a dog who's always looking for the supper dish to be filled, you know, two or three times a day. Now, surely there are times in our lives when we need the manna. But the ultimate purpose, friends... God's ultimate purpose is to bring us to a place where we no longer need it. Even then, if we expand our field of vision, we will begin to discern the Lord at work in our lives, guiding us in ways that we provide for ourselves, as well as those that we love. All that we have is ultimately God's Generous gift. Isn't that, shouldn't that be enough? Now, here at the Christian church, every Sunday, we gather at the table of the Lord. There, we consume not manna and quail like the Israelites, but bread and cup, which we understand to be, for us, the body and the blood of our Savior. The Reformation era, the Reformance era in Europe, uh, there was a confession. There's a period of time during the Reformation where theologians would get together and go, hey, we need to come up with something that you can recite to say, I believe X, Y, Z, and, and that makes you a Christian. Or I can't agree with this, this, and this. And they'd go, well, if you can't agree with this, this, and this, and this confession, then you're not a Christian. There's something else, but you're not a Christian because you have to be able to say these things and believe these things totally. I'm not a big fan of catechisms or creeds um, or anything like that that requires each and every one of us to necessarily confess something that we all completely and wholly agree with and, and, and aren't open to our individual circumstances in the way that we personally see God in our lives, I think God is far too big to put our relationship with him into one statement of faith. But I do find this beautiful. The Heidelberg Catechism is what it's called. And um, let me... Uh, Just read this. These lines date from a time when the concept of God's providence didn't seem so mysterious and strange. As if to say, back, this was kind of the idea. This is where we want to be. As if to say, I trust God so much that I do not 
doubt that God will provide whatsoever. I also believe that whatever I need for body and soul, for whatever shall turn to my good, to avail all adversity, God will send to me in this sad world. It's kind of a pretty statement. The, the authors of the confession define this theological concept of faith as asking, what do you understand about the, the providence of God? So it's a catechism. So somebody would go, what do you understand by the providence of God? And if you're a good Christian, you've memorized this, and you would say this back word for word. It's kind of a call and repeat response kind of thing. Strange, but the answer is beautiful. I hope you'll think so too. The almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's cool. I think it's cool sounding. If nothing else, those are powerful words indeed. For 40 years, God had fed these people every meal. He provided bread and meat and water. Yet now, now they were ready to pass into the promised land. And the author goes out of his way to tell us that God is going to provide the manna no more. Why? Because now they're living off the land that God had promised them. See, the story shows us that God gives us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. But pastor, what about poverty? What about starvation? What about all the stuff that happens in the world, even to God's people? It's funny, in a way, how we think about needs, our needs, versus God's needs. Jesus mentioned living water. Instead of running water, he talks about the bread of life instead of a baked loaf. God is most concerned about our spiritual condition. And God acts to correct through the power of the cross. But God is still providing for our needs. So, if we believe that, if you're sitting here thinking, okay, I'm with you. So, how will you respond? God has done so much for us. And God continues to act in our lives in a way which takes away our disgrace and our sin. And God desperately wants to celebrate with us in a relationship with him. Because I believe, I hope you do too, that God does in fact provide just what we need just when we need it. In the presence of such a gift, how will you respond? You don't have to actually answer right now. Go home. Think about it. Pray about it. And see if God wants to do something completely new in your life. And we might begin to see God working in our lives in entirely new ways. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.
Well, what do you think? I'll say that throughout tonight's episode, I think the one thing that just really, really sticks with me is this idea that faith has to be lived to be experienced. It's like the saying, it's better to give than receive. I can explain that idea to you all day long, but until you actually experience the selfless joy that comes from unexpected giving versus the selfish joy of receiving, you'll never truly understand what it's about. Faith has to be lived to truly be experienced. Hmm. Something to think about. Anyway, until next week, friend, be well.